Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. They now have CPU-optimized droplets with dedicated hyper-threads from best-in-class Intel CPUs for all your machine learning and batch processing needs. You can easily spin up their one-click machine learning and AI application image. This gives you immediate access to Python 3, R, Jupyter Notebook, TensorFlow, Scikit, and PyTorch. Use our special link to get a $100 credit for DigitalOcean and try it today for free at the do.co slash changelog. Once again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to Practical AI, a weekly podcast about making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. This is where conversations around AI, machine learning, and data science happen. Join the community and Slack with us around various topics of the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Practical AI FM. And now onto the show. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Practical AI Podcast. I'm Chris Benson, an AI and digital transformation strategist, and with me is my co-host, Daniel Whitenack, who is a data scientist who likes to use AI to do good. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Doing very well. We have a pretty good episode lined up here, I think. Um, we have uh, Chris DeBellis, whom I'll introduce in just a minute, uh, and he uh, is a guy I've known for a while, uh, and we're going to be talking about some computer vision stuff today that's really state-of-the-art. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to kind of dig into a few of the, the nuts and bolts of some things that, that we mentioned in previous episodes, but haven't really gotten into the weeds with, so I'm excited about that. I am too. So uh, I'm going to introduce Chris DeBellis uh, and, and tell you a little bit about him, and then I'll turn it over to Chris for a second. Uh, Chris and I have actually worked together at Honeywell, where we were both uh, kind of plank owners of the very first dedicated AI team at Honeywell uh, Solu- Safety and Productivity Solutions. And I'm no longer with Honeywell, but Chris still is and is doing some really cool work. And uh, we, we, I, I miss being able to work with him. So how are you doing today, Chris? Hey, Chris. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, it's going to be confusing with two Chris's. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, true. Chris and I worked together for a while and we we dealt with that. So hopefully that experience will come in handy here. Awesome. Here so uh, maybe I'll say Mr. DeBellis and make it sound all official. Oh, that's very right formal. Here. Yeah, it doesn't feel right, though. Uh, So, okay. So um, we are, just for our audience, uh, last night I was actually with Chris because he was at the Atlanta Deep Learning Meetup doing a fantastic presentation on Mask RCNN, which is a a deep learning algorithm for uh, computer vision. And uh, we're going to do a deep dive in this episode into what that is and and the, the pros and cons and cool things about it. So I'm pretty excited about it. And Chris, thank you for doing such a fantastic job last night. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, my pleasure. Last night was a lot of fun. Uh, Had a good time doing it and uh, looking forward to talking about it some more today. Cool. Well, you know what? I am going to start us off with the first question. And I guess I'd like you to just kind of tell us what robotic perception is, since we're talking about robotic perception for Mask RCNN. Sure. So robotic perception is basically about seeing understanding. 
using sensors so that the, the robot can interpret the environment and understand its place within that environment. Typically, we do that through a combination of 2D sensors, 3D sensors, other types of sensors, but it, it's basically helping the computer uh, that's part of the robot to understand that environment. So what kind of robots are we are we talking about? Um, you know, like uh, what are in the context of uh, manufacturing or like, uh, you know, Roombas? What are we what are we talking about here? Yeah. So good question. Really all robots. Right. It's easy to think of it in terms of, say, a robotic arm in a manufacturing environment where it has to move uh, and, and perform some task. But robot perception also applies to something like um, self-driving cars, where you have to understand the environment that you're in. So it's really all all robots. Yeah. So a, a robot, I guess, doesn't have to mean like you know articulating arms and uh, quasi eyes or something, but really any kind of you know machine that is trying to get some sense about its environment. Is that is that accurate? Exactly. That's exactly right. So uh, I guess I'd like to to get a sense as we're tying some of this together in the beginning. You know, ro- robotic perception's been around for a while with some other techniques, but in in recent time, deep learning has really had a profound impact on it. And so I guess can you describe the role of deep learning in robotic perception and and maybe put it in some context with with some of the other methodologies that either are also currently being used or maybe have been used in the past. Sure. So, you know, traditionally we've used computer vision techniques that were not based on deep learning. So an example would be something like uh, canny edge detection, uh, Huff line transforms. These are these are more traditional approaches to detecting curves and lines uh, and edges of objects. And then uh, and, and there's still a lot of that type of approach being used uh, within robotic perception. But around, uh, say, 2010, 11, 12, right, that's when we started to see deep learning being applied to uh, computer vision tasks. So AlexNet came out in 2012, and it was uh, one of the first algorithms, the deep learning algorithms, to try to classify objects. And then things have just kind of built on top of that. And so later algorithms came out, they get the, the neural networks became deeper and deeper and more capable of detecting and classifying these objects. And so really that's sort of been the trend uh, over the last few years is to move from that traditional approach of computer vision to the deep learning approach for computer vision and perception. And you mentioned kind of detecting and and identifying is is there really two parts of it is it is it about like knowing you know knowing there's an object in my environment and then secondly knowing what that object is are those typically separate things or those do those go together how how is that handled so in deep learning uh, typically we're doing a few things. So we're, we're taking classification, which is uh, typically thought of for single objects in an image. And you'd say, oh, that's a picture of a cat or a dog or a person. But the more advanced algorithms are able to detect multiple objects within that scene. So you might say, hey, I see um, two cats and two dogs and a person. And you would be able to identify where within the scene each of those objects actually is. And so then this mask our CNN algorithm can actually go a step further and say which pixels within that image that I'm seeing belong to which object. So these pixels go to this cat and these pixels below belong to this dog. 
Interesting. Yeah. And just uh, for for our audience members who are joining us um, in, in this episode, in a previous episode, in, in episode seven, we had a great discussion with, with Jared Lander about what deep learning is it, itself and how it fits into the landscape of AI. So definitely check that out if you're kind of first learning about these things. Um, but you mentioned, uh, you know, mask uh, RCNN. Maybe we could just kind of start moving that direction by talking about, you know, breaking down that that acronym. So like the CNN part is is not a news network, right? What, what, are, <laughs> what are we what are we talking about? So CNN is uh, in the deep learning world known as convolutional neural network. So it's a neural network that's based on the idea of these convolutions. The R in RCNN is region. So the way that the algorithm goes about figuring out uh, what's in each part of the, the image is by generating these regions. Re they call regions of interest. And then it looks at the regions of interest that it generates and tries to detect if there's an object in that region. And if it does detect an object, it tries to classify it. If it doesn't detect an object, it just says, oh, this area is just background. So quick question for you, Chris. Mm -hmm. uh, as we start looking at MASCAR CNN, could you actually give us a little bit of a, 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 an understanding of, of how that fits into the larger category of convolutional neural networks and give us a baseline of what CNNs are able to do and then contrast that uh, as we start working into uh, MASCAR CNN? Okay, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about CNN versus uh, just a traditional feed-forward neural network. So maybe folks are, list, are familiar with uh, like a LSTM or uh, RNNs, things like that. Yeah, if you could even give us, I, th I think probably a lot of people in our audience are, are most familiar with uh, just basic feed-forward networks. And if you could talk about what a convolutional neural network does on top of that, what it's adding to it, and then we can kind of go into mask our CNN uh, and go farther. And that way, if someone hasn't been exposed, um, uh, all three of us have been exposed to CNNs for quite some time, right. but it gives somebody a, a path on uh, evolving where they're going with this. Perfect. So in a traditional feed-forward network, um, you have the data coming in at one end of the network, and then you have uh, several, maybe many, hidden layers, and the input, sorry, the output from one layer becomes the input to the next, and that's how it's a feed-forward. And typically, as you move through the network, you have fewer and fewer nodes within each layer. So you're doing fewer and fewer computations as you move along the network. That helps a lot. And how, how, what does what does a when you add convolutions in? What does that do to that architecture? Right. So the convolutions are important for images, especially because the convolutions are the best way to think of it is uh, say a three by three grid. So you're looking at three pixels by three pixels at a time, and you're moving that grid across the image from left to right, and then you go to the next row and you do it again from left to right. So you're moving down the image and going left to right, looking at a, a set defined number of pixels at a time. And those, we call them kernels, and that kernel varies in size. So you might start with a three by three and go across the entire image. And then you could do a maybe a nine by nine kernel and look at the image. And then a bigger one, maybe a you know, 32 by 32. and the important thing to remember with CNNs is because those kernels are square, you are maintaining maintaining that spatial relationship between the pixels, which uh, for images is important. 
right? If you think about an image and you're looking for, say, a cat, you know that the eyes are going to be close together. So you want to maintain that spatial relationship because the eyes should be close together. You shouldn't be looking for an eye in the upper left corner and an eye, you know, in the bottom right corner. That, that would be unlikely. So there's a relationship between the pixels that matters because we're talking about images. Yes, the relationship, uh, the spatial relationship. That's right. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned like things like AlexNet and in, uh, earlier in our discussion, which, you know, are, are various, uh, various models that have been developed over time for image related detections. Um, do a lot of these uh, image based models um, or, or models trying to do object detection and images? Um, is it fair to say that, that most of them involve convolutions in one way or another? That's right. They all involve, involve convolutions in one way or another. Uh, the difference really is in the size of that kernel, uh, the combinations of sizes that they're using, the values that are within those kernels for each of those cells, and then over time, uh, how many layers there are in that network. Because as, as the technology got better, as the GPUs got faster, they could do more and more training in a set amount of time. And so they were able to have deeper networks. Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, we've kind of gotten into the convolutional part and you've mentioned that there's kind of various incarnations of this. Maybe we can step back and kind of go back to the robot perception use case. And um, maybe you could share with us some of the challenges that you face in that particular use case and maybe challenges that might motivate you to use something like mask or CNN, which, which we'll eventually get to. Um, but what, what are the kind of motivating challenges uh, in, in this field that make just kind of the normal convolutional neural network, quote unquote, normal? I, I don't know if any of them are normal, but what might not make it enough? Sure. So with the CNN networks, basically they're used for the classification. So I see a cat or a dog or a person or, or whatever the object is. And then typically what we're doing is we're taking that network and also um, at sort of at the end of it, um, applying more technology to say, OK, can we identify where the object is in the image? Right. So that bounding box, if you're familiar with that term, um, where we try to draw the box around the object. That kind of comes towards the very end, but we're still using the CNN network to identify what the object is. And so we, we do that additional processing later. So with something like mask, in addition to that bounding box regression to determine the position, we're also then doing another set of steps or calculations to say where within that bounding box is the image exactly. That, that makes sense. I, I'm wondering just kind of maybe off of one of my, my previous uh, questions. So when you say you're kind of adding to the end, are you, are you meaning like you have kind of different models for the bounding box thing and the, the detection thing, or that's all kind of rolled into one end-to-end -end, uh, architecture? Is that kind mm -hmm. of how it works or yeah. is... Yeah, good question. It's, it's, it's added on at the end. It becomes part of the, the overall uh, network, but really... Uh, it's, it's tacked on at the end, and so the base, what we call feature extraction, which is pulling out the, those little features, the, the, the straight lines, the curves, a lot of the relationships between the pixels, that can often and actually is often based on an existing uh, classification network. So for instance, in the case of Mask RCNN, it uses something called ResNet uh, to do its feature extraction and classification, 
And then it, on top of that, the creators of Mascar CNN added the ability to define exactly where the, the pixels are within the object. And you mentioned something that I think would be uh, uh, worth taking a moment. You talked about feature extraction. And as we, as you work toward doing classification, could you take just a second and talk about how you do feature extraction from the simplest lines, you know, up through the different things that eventually become the classification of an object? Can you, can you speak to that for a moment for those who may not be familiar with it? Sure. I'll give that a try. It's a little tough without visuals, but Basically, you know, a CNN network is, is really good at extracting what we call features, which is the example I just gave. So we're looking for maybe curved lines to, to one direction and then curved lines to the other direction. We're looking for those edges where um, maybe we have uh, light and dark colors coming together. Um, maybe we're looking for straight lines. So if you think about like detecting something like an airplane, right, you would need a combination of all of these features to be recognized, right? So you would need straight lines to detect the wings, but you would need need curved line detections for like the front of the, of the aircraft, all right? So, and then where they are, because we talked a little bit earlier about spatial relationships, where those features are matter, right? You, you, you need to have, for it to be an airplane, uh, you would have straight lines kind of out to the sides and you would have more roundness uh, in the center. For instance. So would it be fair to say that you're starting with some of the most basic or atomic things, such as a simple line or a gradient from dark to white, and you're building up almost like Legos, uh, a, an object out of these very primitive detections up into something that's more comprehensive leading to your object? That's exactly right. So the earlier layers of your network are detecting those simpler features like you described. And then as you add more layers, Remember, remember the, uh, the output of the earlier layers become inputs to the next layer. So the next layers are operating on uh, those features that were detected. And so it's trying to build patterns from features. So the, the earlier feature detection is looking at like straight lines and curved lines and things like that. And then it's looking for maybe curves that are like an eye. And then you're looking for, oh, two eyes together. That's, that that you know, maybe is the part of a face. And then, then you add more features that have the whole head. So you're building, as you said, Chris, you're building from the finer representation of the features to to more complex. Yeah. So, I mean, this this all sounds great. So, I mean, it sounds like you've got your network. It's got this, you know, portion that's that's detecting all of these features and, and determining, you know, let's say if you have a cat in your image and then you've got this portion tacked on that might be detecting bounding boxes of where that that cat's located within the image. What prompts someone to go further than that? So to go beyond CNN, kind of going back to where we started this conversation, why uh, the mask R part? Um, what, what challenges uh, are still present even if we're using kind of this CNN-based network? Yeah, great question. So the example we used last night at the meetup from the Udacity Robotics Nano Degree Program, one of the uh, assignments is to take uh, a robot that has two arms and in front of it is a desk with various objects, uh, things like a bar of soap, uh, I believe it was um, an eraser, uh, a tube of toothpaste, etc. And you have to perceive what's on the desk and then you have to manipulate the robot arms to grab the item and then put it into a basket to the side. So if you think about grabbing that tube of toothpaste, well, if it's perfectly aligned with the 
the table, then you just kind of reach forward and you grab it. But if it happens to be turned at a 45 degree angle, you also have to adjust the arm to match that rotation and then you can grab it. So if you think about a bounding box, so the bounding box just says, hey, somewhere in this box is this tube of toothpaste, but you don't know which way it's pointing or how it's oriented. The mask, since it fills in the pixels for you of where the object is, you can look at it and say, oh, it's not straight up and down. It's actually at a 45, and so I need to turn my arm. Okay, so I'd like to ask a question before we dive fully into Mascar CNN about uh, what the options are uh, within uh, the different CNN architectures that might be available for robotic perception, you know, such as uh, YOLO or others. And and at a, at a very high level, if you could just uh, give us a sentence or two on kind of uh, of what different options there are and and then why you might have chosen to go Mascar CNN for for a given uh, solution that you're looking for. Okay, so so something like a YOLO, uh, which is a great algorithm, it only gives you the bounding boxes. So a lot of times, though, that's all you need, right? So I'm trying to think of some good examples. So like if you're doing maybe a self-driving car, if you're de- able to detect in front of you is a pedestrian or another vehicle and you have a bounty box around it, that's probably close enough, right, for, for being able to make a decision as to what you should do, right? If, if this thing is uh, clearly in front of you, it doesn't really matter exactly where the, the mask outline of, of that object is. You, you're able to detect that there's something in front of me and I should perhaps slow down or stop. Mask our CNN, because it gives you the masks, it's really good for when that orientation matters. So the example we just gave about uh, a robot arm having to pick objects off of a table uh, is a good example. This episode of Practical AI is brought to you by Hired. One thing people hate doing is searching for a new job. It's so painful to search through open positions on every job board under the sun. The process to find a new job is such a mess. If only there was an easier way. Well, I'm here to tell you there is. Our friends at Hired have made it so that companies send you offers with salary, benefits, and even equity up front. All you have to do is answer a few questions to showcase who you are and what type of job you're looking for. They work with more than 6,000 companies from startups to large publicly traded companies in 14 major tech hubs in North America and Europe. You get to see all of your interview requests. You can accept, reject, or make changes to their offer even before you talk with anyone. And it's totally free. This isn't going to cost you anything. It's not like you have to go there and spend money to get this opportunity. And if you get a job through Hire, they're even going to give you a bonus. Normally it's $300, but because you're a listener of Practical AI, it's $600 instead. Even if you're not looking for a job, you can refer a friend and Hire will send you a check for $1,337 when they accept the job. As you can see, Hire makes it too easy. Get started at Hire.com slash Practical AI. So in, in terms of, you know, some of the challenges with moving beyond this bounding box sort of uh, idea um, and moving more towards the the mask idea, it, it occurs to me that, you know, it's already a somewhat challenging problem to get good, you know, labeled training data for just like a bound, you know, the bounding boxes and labels of 
of objects within images. Um, it seems like that would be even more challenging if you're wanting to, you know, label the proper masks within an image for particular objects where you're getting even more detail, not just, you know, where the objects are within what region, but you know, what the actual mask of the object is. Is that a problem or are there, are there, have there been techniques developed to deal with that? Yeah, it's a huge problem. So if you think about the simpler example of classifying an object, so is this a cat, a dog, or a person? You could, if you were doing training on those images, you could do something simple like create a directory for each type of object. And for instance, you have a directory called dog, and that directory name becomes the object name, the class name, and you put all of your pictures of dogs into that directory, and you train, and that's that, that's your labeling, right? But to do something like detecting the right location of the bounding box, you, you have to take those images and draw the bounding box around the individual objects, and then train. So extending that further to something like mask, since you want to get accurate masks, you can't just draw bounding boxes around each of the objects. You have to draw the actual outline. So you, you end up generating a polygon, typically, uh, some, some really odd shape um, enclosed outline for each of the objects. So if you had an, uh, an image, say, of you know four cats and four dogs, that's eight objects you have to outline. And it becomes really tricky when they're occluded or, or one is in front of the other. So it's only partially showing and you have that common boundary between the two. You want to be really accurate when you do that. So, yeah, labeling or annotating data for, for masks is uh, cumbersome and tedious. And one thing I'd like to, to clarify in case we have any listeners that aren't familiar with, with what masks are. Masks are specifically where you uh, apply a bunch of pixels together to form that polygon that Chris was alluding to, to where um, if you were looking at it visually, it would almost be maybe you're applying a color for those pixels and you'd almost have like a, a, a green overlay over a person's body that you're masking uh, in a picture. And you might have many of those masks, but I, I just want you to define that for, for everyone so they could follow along with, I guess, as you, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about as you're as you're getting into uh, you're labeling the data and you're looking at the data sources that you're pulling in and, and how you do that, what, what are the, the typical data sources that are used in the process and how do they come together for the training? So if you're familiar with the COCO data set, over the last few, few years, uh, folks have been taking the COCO data set and providing the masks. So they've been going in and annotating, providing that that polygon around the individual elements or the individual objects within each of the the images. So that allows the people that created the original MASCAR CNN network to do transfer learning, which is you start with um, you know an existing set of weights. Uh, so they were able to use an existing set of images that were already annotated and create their algorithm. And then what we do now is we take those weights that they use to create the original MASCAR CNN network from and we use that as the starting point to train for images that we want to now detect. So let's say there's something else that we want to detect that's not part of the original COCO data set. So we, we train with new images. So we have to go out and obtain those images, annotate those images, and then apply uh, the training on those images with the COCO weights as our starting point. And that's actually called transfer learning. 
Awesome. Yeah. And when you're doing that, um, I mean, because if I'm thinking of, you know, I, I'm, you know, listening to this podcast, listening to you, you know, talk about all of these exciting things, I might want to, you know, uh, I might have a use case that's, that's really interesting for this, I'm, or I might want to try it on data that's maybe, you know, like you said, not not already masked as part of say the cocoa data set is that just like when you're when you're doing that in in your context is it a matter of you and your team going through and and annotating those those images or have you kind of found any uh efficient ways to um you know crowdsource those within your organization or anything like that or have have you heard of any any ways to kind of speed up that process or is it still just kind of uh, brute force getting through everything? <laughs> yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, unfortunately, it was me and my team that had to annotate the first set of images and that took, took quite a while. The images we were- Like how long? So the images we were doing would have anywhere from, uh, say up to maybe 40 or 50 objects in it. And it might take 15 or 20 minutes to annotate one image. And so, you know, with deep learning, you wanna have a lot of images. You, you wanna have a lot of training data. So uh, after I think a few hundred uh, of these images, we, we kind of said, you know what, let's just do a proof of concept with what we have because it's taking so long to annotate. Uh, and we got to that point and, and we created our model. And then we said, okay, you know, we proved out the concept and said, okay, if we really want to go forward with this, we need to do this at scale. And so as you pointed out, uh, yeah, you want to either engage with a company that does this. There, there are a number of them uh, that do this for you. Uh, they hire folks um, really around the world that can go ahead and annotate your images for you. And, and that's that's really the way to go at scale. Yeah. So, it, you know, bribing people with with uh, pizza and getting together, you know, one night to annotate data sets only gets you so far. It, it really does, especially if it's taking 15 minutes per image. Uh, you know, you wouldn't get too many done even with a couple of pizzas. So I guess I would draw us back to uh, mask RCNN and and I guess ask you uh, to kind of, as we start uh, talking about the algorithm itself, can you define what RCNN is and then define uh, when you add mask over that? How would you do that with the intention here of, of taking us deeper into the specifics of the algorithm? Sure. So the CNN, as we said, that's the convolutional neural network. R is the is region proposal. So again, the way that this algorithm decides uh, whether or not it sees any objects is it looks in different regions or different parts of the image, and it tries to classify what it sees in each of those parts as being either background or not background. And if it says, hey, this is not background, then it tries to figure out what it is exactly that tries to classify it. So the regions uh, are different sections of the overall image that it's looking at in different scale and different proportions, different sizes. And then the the mask bit is just the the idea. So instead of tacking on the end the bounding box piece, you're you're kind of tacking on the the piece to actually map out these masks. Is, is mm -hmm. that right? Does it, it right. does it work in the same way in that you would kind of bolt this onto the end, or or is that different? Exactly, exactly. So towards the end of the network, and the reason it's at the end is because you're you're using those same features that you've extracted earlier in the network that you're using to classify it, you're also using those features to d decide where the mask should go. So uh, a point about the mask, probably the best way, at least the, the way that I think about it is, the mask gives me the X and the Y, or the, if you want to think of it in terms of the image, the row and the height coordinates of 
each of the pixels that belongs to that object. And that's really important in something like a robotic application because uh, everything, uh, you, we said earlier, you have multiple sensors, right? So all of these sensors need to be triangulated and aligned so that you can uh, make decisions from multiple sensors from the same point of view. So having that X and Y coordinate or that row height coordinate that exactly defines all of the points that make up this object is really important. So when you're when you're considering Mascar CNN as a, as an architecture for for your own use case, I, I guess when you're comparing it against alternative architectures, YOLO or others, is it really the use case that's dictating going there because your use case needs the benefits of of the mask versus a bounding box? Is is that how you would think about it? Definitely. So you know, we've just talked a little bit about uh, mask RCNN. It's great if you, it, to have those masks, but you know, it comes at uh, a little bit of a uh, cost. It's, it's uh, one thing we haven't specifically said, uh, but it is computationally expensive. It, these algorithms, they, the more you do, the longer they take. And so adding on or tacking on this extra functionality, these, these extra mathematical operations that have to be performed, even though it's being performed on a GPU, uh, highly uh, parallelized, it still takes extra time. So it may not be necessary. It may not make sense that in your application you, you want to spend that extra time generating these masks, especially if, if the bounding box is sufficient. Uh, as Daniel pointed out uh, just a few minutes ago, training is more difficult. So uh, the tedious task of generating all of these uh, annotated images, you know, you have to do that as well. It, it's just, it, it, it's a great algorithm when you need it. But if you don't need it, it probably doesn't make sense to implement it because something like a YOLO, uh, which Chris, you mentioned earlier, is faster if all you need is bounding boxes. Yeah, it, I want to I want to dig in a little bit to that that idea you that you brought up around efficiency. So I mean, there's the the training side of things, which is 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 one piece of it. And you know, I I would imagine these these you know networks being trained on you know huge GPU boxes uh, wherever you have them or or a, or a big cluster in a distributed way. But when we get to talking about inference, so taking that trained model and then making inferences, so uh, utilizing the model to actually detect objects, objects and masks in in an environment. Does the network size and the complexity also factor in on the inference side? I mean, I know we're talking about robots, so um, if you're kind of shipping this model out to run on a robot, I'm assuming that that robot doesn't have you know a a huge uh, rack of servers on it necessarily. It might you know have a smaller amount of computation on the on the actual robot. Has that been something that you've had to had to factor in as well? Right, that's exactly right. Typically, when you're training, uh, you might be training in the cloud, and and you can spin up uh, however many GPUs you need for training, and that reduces your training time. But for inference, you probably just have one GPU on your robot, and so uh, yeah, you you definitely have to consider that inference time. So if you're trying to do something in you know near real time with streaming video, um, Mask RCNN is going to be a bit challenged because it may be only able to process two or three or 10 images, uh, depending on the size, uh, per, per second. So you're, you're absolutely right. And the other thing too is oftentimes the GPU that you're using for training might be more powerful than the GPU on your robot. And so not only do you have fewer of them, you have a less powerful one. So inference becomes even longer. Could you just, you know, real quick, because um, we've talked about this 
you know, mentioned it in, in a, uh, a bunch of times, but I think this would be the perfect context to really clarify, you know, why in both of these cases, you've mentioned using the GPU, why in particular for these types of networks is a, is a GPU necessary? So good question. If you think about something like uh, MaskR CNN that's built on a ResNet 101. So 101 uh, means it has 101 layers. And we talked before about these convolutions that happen. So you're looking at the this overall image. So if you have an image that's 1024 by 1024 pixels and you're looking at it in just one layer, three by three, and then spreading that over the entire image and then looking at it again, maybe at nine by nine and then, you know, 64 by 64, various size kernels. And the other thing, too, we haven't talked about uh, a color image. It actually actually has three channels deep, right? You have a channel for red, a channel for green and a channel for blue. So those convolutions actually are doing three times the work on that first layer because it has to look at the red, the green and the blue value. So if you think about that, uh, just in one layer, and you're going to do this over 101 layers, you get into billions of floating point operations that have to have to happen. Cool. So let me ask you this, as we kind of start to wind up here, uh, moving in that direction, if you're listening to this and and you've gotten all excited about being able to use MaskR CNN uh, for robotics or other uses that you might be interested in, what types of skill or knowledge are kind of prerequisite to get into this and to to be able to uh, work toward using it productively? How do you get started along that path? Mm, Good question. So at least for me, I'll talk a little bit about my experience. Um, To go from, say, traditional data science into the deep learning algorithms, um, I think one of the big uh, skills that you have to have is coding skills, right? You're you're going to be doing a lot of coding. You're going to be downloading other people's code, probably from GitHub. Um, you're going to be configuring it, installing it, and then you're going to be, uh, at minimum, you know, tuning some parameters. But very possibly, uh, especially if if you're doing this in a in a production setting where your code is going to be actually used for something, you'll have to make changes, code changes. So the ability to to code is really important, particularly Python. Most of these algorithms. Are available in Python. I would say, and and, and there's a lot of debate out there. I, I know, uh, you know, some folks say, oh, to to do deep learning and data science, you really have to have a strong understanding of math and statistics. And and I think if you are doing AI research, that's absolutely true. But if you are doing, like we talked about earlier, that transfer learning, um, a lot of the math and and statistics comes from training the initial model. So if you're using someone else's trained model as your starting point the ability to do the math and statistics become less important. Um, and I know some folks are, are not going to like that, but but that's been my experience is, uh, over the last six months, say, most of my time has been spent coding, not so much worrying about statistics and, and you know, derivatives and matrix multiplications because the software does that for you. So that's one of the great things about the frameworks like TensorFlow. And then again, for me, uh, to get started, I spent a lot of time watching uh, YouTube videos. Uh, Stanford has a lot of great courses online. Their, their deep learning courses are online and you can watch the lectures and really learn a lot from those. So for me, that was, that was just enormously valuable. Also, Udacity. I, I took a couple of the Udacity courses. They have some free courses. They have some paid courses. Uh, those are really helpful. 
Yeah, no, I, I was just gonna I was just gonna mention I, I really appreciate you providing this this perspective and being transparent because uh, I think there are a lot of people that get intimidated um, kind of going into this space and thinking that, you know, they, they don't have a PhD in mathematics, right? So what what difference can they make? But it is super encouraging, you know, for for myself to to hear you talk about, you know, some of the things that you've been involved with and and you've done. But, you know, coming at it from more of the coding perspective and from the transfer learning perspective and building up those skills as you have. I think, you know, uh, for me, it's an encouragement as, as I'm learning more things and I hope it is for, for the audience members as well. Yeah, and that's absolutely uh, what, what I was hoping people would take away from my comments that, you know, if you're passionate about it, don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. And it's not easy, but it's not impossible. And there are going to be days where you, you're looking at something and you're looking at these crazy formulas and you're going, I just don't want to deal with that today and that's perfectly fine. And there are days when you look at it and you go, you know what, I'm going to dig deeper and I'm going to see if I can't make sense of some of this. And over time, it starts to make sense, especially it's repetitive. You see things over and over and over and you start to connect the dots and then, you know, just the, you're, the light bulb goes on one day and you, you go, oh, I get, I understand batch normalization. Now I understand why we normalize things. I didn't understand that three months ago, but now now I finally get it. And so that's that's really for me what it what it takes uh, to to get to be successful is is that passion and enough of a foundation to just keep growing and growing and improving yourself and your skills. So uh, as we wind down, I guess as a kind of a last thing to touch on here, I wanted to ask you, um, I know that uh, you introduced me and the rest of our team at Honeywell to a, a particular GitHub repo. And then you talked again uh, through that at the meetup. And I wanted mm-hmm. to, to bring that out and uh, we'll put it in the show notes. But for, for those of you maybe listening, it's, it's on github.com slash Matterport slash mask underscore RCNN. And and if you would uh, just give us a quick overview of the uh, Matterport mask RCNN repo and, and what's possible there, and that way we can kind of leave that in our listeners' hands to go explore further. Sure, happy to. So the mask RCNN algorithm actually came out of work that was done at Facebook. Been several, at least that I'm aware of, implementations of it. So Facebook has their own called uh, Detectron, which is written in, in Cafe 2. Uh, Google has an implementation in TensorFlow, pure TensorFlow. But the the version, uh, Chris, that you mentioned and that I really like, it's a combination of some Keras, some TensorFlow, and a lot of pre-processing and post-processing of your, your image uh, in Python uh, NumPy. And the thing I really like about it is they provide some Jupyter notebooks that they've written, which give you a good insight into what's actually happening with the algorithm. So it's not so much of a black box. You can you can follow along with these notebooks and kind of learn your way through uh, like the R and RCNN. Where are those regions coming from and why are there so many and how do they figure out which ones to use and which ones to throw away? So the Matterport implementation is great for learning. Uh, they also have an active community. It's being updated. There's a lot of uh, good information in the issues. So if you were to read through some of the issues uh, that they have, uh, folks have contributed and talked about uh, some improvements to the algorithm. And you can really glean a lot of information as to what's going on and how the mask RCNN algorithm works by reading those uh, those posts. The actual structure, um, there's really a couple of main files. So the, the model.python file kind of has the functions to do training and inference. There's a utilities.py uh, file, which has some utilities. Uh, the visualizations uh, are all in the visualize.py file. 
Um, there's a config file which has all of your parameters. Uh, so when you're doing your training and your hyper uh, parameter tuning, that's where you would go. You can go and set them there. It's 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 also a class. So if you want to override the class, you can do that. If you're pretty familiar with uh, classes in Python, that's pretty easy to do. Uh, those are the main Python files. Uh, the way to get started in the samples folder, there is a demo Python notebook. Uh, that's a, the place that I would start. There's also, uh, I believe in one of the samples they give you is for training shapes, so triangles and squares and, and circles. Uh, train shapes dot iPy notebook. That's that's how I would get started. That's how I got started. Um, read the information that they have, a lot of good stuff, uh, and and look at the notebooks and just get started. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for taking us through that and, and giving us that last orientation on the uh, repo. Uh, I know that as uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing back from listeners on what they've done with Mascar CNN. Um, and so, uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming onto the show uh, and, and giving us kind of this deep dive through Mascar CNN. Uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. It was a little uh, new experience for me doing this uh, on a podcast without having visual. So hopefully it came across well. It came across great. I thought it was a fantastic tutorial. And for our listeners, uh, I hope you guys will will reach out to us uh, on social media. Uh, it's really easy to get to uh, Daniel and me. We are on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. We actually have a practical AI LinkedIn group that you can participate in. And then uh, there's also, we have a community uh, online uh, with Slack at changelog.com slash community. And we're looking forward to your feedback. Uh, Chris, uh, is there any way that... Uh, listeners can reach out to you? Uh, sure. Uh, probably the best way is just to find me on LinkedIn. It's Chris DeBellis, C-H-R-I-S-D-E-B-E-L-L-I-S. Uh, I think I'm the only Chris DeBellis out on LinkedIn, so hopefully you can find me. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I'm looking after we uh, get off the show, I'm going to dive into some NASCAR CNN and have some fun today. Awesome. Good luck with that. All right, thank you for tuning into this episode of Practically AI. If you enjoyed this show, do us a favor, go on iTunes, give us a rating, go in your podcast app and favorite it. If you are on Twitter or a social network, share a link with a friend, whatever you got to do, share the show with a friend if you enjoyed it. And bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And we catch our errors before our users do here at changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. This episode is hosted by Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson. Editing is done by Tim Smith. The music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelaw.com. When you go there, pop in your email address, get our weekly email keeping you up to date with the news and podcasts for developers in your inbox every single week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.